You're listening to the Irish Times. It's a bleary-eyed Monday morning on the Out of Time podcast here, Pat. Yeah, I feel like I've been in bed about two hours. <laughs> because you stayed up to watch the Chiefs Patriots game. I stayed up until half time and then went to bed and watched the rest of it this morning. But you stayed up right to the bitter, bitter end. I actually went to bed at half three and then got back up at five o'clock to look at the eclipse and then went back to bed. <laughs> so I'm double um, bleary eyed. Um, so that was madness. Which did you enjoy more, the eclipse or, uh, or the Patriots uh, winning again? Well, again. The, it was very cloudy for the eclipse, so that was um, a little bit pointless. The. Patriots, it's hard to say that I enjoyed it because I am sick to my back teeth of the Patriots. And I know you're going to start eulogising on how great well, Brady is and how great Belichick is, but I'm just sick of them winning. Got a certain amount of game, Pat. Yeah. Oh, no, they're absolutely superb, but uh, it, it was hard to watch. And I, I essentially what kept me awake until half three in the morning was hope. <laughs> and hope died uh, in overtime. For, for anybody who didn't see it, Give some spoiler alerts. Oh, spoiler alerts. We're going, well, I think we've already let you know who won. <laughs> but, but in case you've got it recorded, spoiler alert forward on a few minutes in the podcast. <laughs> but the Patriots won it in overtime with a touchdown that basically, as soon as the coin toss was made and the Patriots got the ball, you realised, well, OK, I could go to bed now because this is over. Because the fourth quarter had become one of those basketball up and down games that was... Riveting, but yeah. uh, but also losing it on a coin toss just seems ridiculous. We should say, like, the, the two championship games last night were amazing. Like, mm. in, in terms of excitement, the first one, uh, the Rams beat the, the Saints um, again in overtime, having gone down 13-0 at the start and fought their way back. Like, a totally engrossing game. Um, and I was watching uh, Chiefs-Patriots and the Patriots got their second touchdown to go 14-0 up just before halftime. And I went, that's it, I'm grand, I'm, I, I'm done here. Um, I, can't, I knew the Chiefs were getting the ball at the start of the second half and that they would make a game out of it. But there was no way I was going to stay up till, till half three. But like, as you say, you were sitting watching it going, I'm glad I stayed up. Yeah, because like Belichick, Bill Belichick's plan for the Patriots was fantastic from the start. They basically kept the ball out of the Chiefs' hands, and particularly Patrick Mahone's hands. And they did what they did. They ran the ball. They were perfectly organised. They shut out the Chiefs in the first half for the first time all season, first time that the Chiefs haven't scored in the first half. And at that point, you were thinking, well, there's not much going to happen here. But in the second half, it was it was like the Chiefs basically suddenly realised, oh, they've got two or three people marking Tyreek Hill in every play. Maybe yeah. we should... Look at somebody else. <laughs> yeah. And with the result that the fourth quarter just was astonishing, that the lead changed hands four times. Mahomes had found his game. And there was also a bizarre amount of contested calls that had to go to and the stoppages, video umpire yeah. and stoppages. The, the fourth quarter was like watching, do you remember the, the courtroom scene in JFK? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, back and to the left. <laughs> it was like watching that intercut with an amazing football game. Yeah. The amount of times they had to go and the zoom in on things. Yeah. Oh, and it was completely who was on the grassy knoll. Did a touch Julian Edelman's 
That was extraordinary. That was extraordinary. Of, of all the of all the calls, and I and I know that that was grinding your gears by the end that the Patriots were getting every call. Pretty much every call was right that every that, call that went their way. Right, yeah. But this one to explain was a, a punt, Chiefs punt. Edelman was the receiver. He went down to to pick it up, and it may or may not have touched the tiniest sliver of his finger. And he stood back off it, and uh, the Chiefs uh, uh, special team ran in, picked up the ball, and, and scored a touchdown. Uh, but it was called back because. Well, it wouldn't have actually counted as a touchdown. It would have been they would have gotten possession from where he touched the ball, but that would have been a huge uh, sea change in the game. And the, it came down to simply put, did he touch the ball? He claimed that he didn't. And the game was stopped for a significant amount of time while they viewed every single angle. And it may well have touched a thumb, like the hair on a thumb, or it may not have. And it eventually was decided that he didn't touch it. But it, generally speaking, the rule is that you can't overrule a call made on the field of play. And the call in the field of play was that he touched it. You can't overrule it unless you're certain. Clear and obvious. And there's no way they were certain. Yeah. And so Chiefs fans are furious about it. There was loads of other calls. And in fairness, as you say, they all went uh, the Patriots' way, but they were all also correct. Yes. So um, I can be infuriated. Not as, not as furious as, as the Saints fans were uh, at the end of the, the first game with a ridiculous no-call on the pass interference, but uh, we don't really have time to go into it as well. Uh, we will talk... Uh, going to talk some NFL next week, hopefully, yeah. uh, ahead of the Super Bowl. But... Um, uh, we, as I say, we don't have time for that today. What we do have time for, uh, Sean Moran is going to be in to talk to us about the Centre Council meeting that was on Saturday that got rid of the three-hand pass rule, which I know, again, you were delighted about. And Philip Reid will be on to talk about Shane Larry's outrageously ballsy win in Abu Dhabi uh, on Saturday. But first, we're going to talk some rugby and you have the draw for the quarterfinals of the Heineken Cup. Saracens versus Glasgow, mm-hmm. Racing versus Toulouse, Munster then are away to Edinburgh, yes, and the All Irish clash of Leinster versus Ulster on Brexit weekend. Oh, uh, that's ideal, isn't it? <laughs> Jerry Thorney and Gavin Comskier are in to tell us all about it. Brexit weekend, lads, It'd be fun for you wherever you are sent. Yeah, it'd be interesting. It, it lands on the Saturday, doesn't it? If yeah. there's a no deal, it could be carnage. Seriously, it actually yeah. could be. I know it sounds funny and it makes for a good headline, but it's like for. 20,000, 25,000 Red Army travelling to Edinburgh mm. or travelling back <laughs> by boats, planes, trains, whatever. People it actually could be quite People messy. don't care, but Pat and I are actually going to a wedding in Donegal on, on the Friday, on actual Brexit Day. So we may not be able to get home oh, either. Brexit Day the Friday. Friday okay. is the 29th, yeah. Well, I've got a feeling that uh, the Edinburgh game might be the Friday night. Mm. Leinster will certainly push for a Saturday, 5.30 kickoff. It depends on BT because they'll want Saracens, the sole English team, on a Saturday primetime slot. Whether that's 3.15 or 5.30 for them, I'm not sure. What? Yeah, what do they... I was reading that in your piece. What do they uh, think uh, primetime is? Because is primetime going up against Saturday football? Yeah, um, I would have thought that 5.30 was a better yeah, time for them yeah. than 3.15. Mm. So they might, it might be that Leinster also is at 3.15 on the Saturday, mm. but certainly Leinster will be pushing for the tea time kickoff. The French seem to love Sunday afternoon television matches, and that's going to be on both um, free-to-air and pay-per-view in France. So you'd imagine that the Toulouse, the Racing-Toulouse game will be on the Sunday. So by that, by that, given that Edinburgh have played a few Friday night games in Murrayfield, it could be the Friday night, or it could be sometime, it could be a triple header on the Saturday as well. 
What could happen? And we know, should know by the end of the week, maybe by as early as Wednesday. What could happen trying to get to Murrayfield, though, for Munster fans? So what is it? Is it Could it be flight delays or changes or could it be like... It long queues? Yeah, long queues. Yeah, passport stuff. Yeah. Uh, that that kind of carry on. Like, you know, it. there's a little bit of white who care about this, you know, that that, that everybody, yeah. you know, I, I was kind of joking about this wedding that we're going to, but like in the invitation we got sent out, you know, there is a kind of a, listen, lads, this is Brexit day, so you may have to leave a lot earlier to get up there because we'll have to drive through Northern Ireland or whatever but uh, so no, no like I've heard even on the radio this morning them saying look flights are not going to be grounded on the 29th no. or no. the 30th any of that stuff but there could be a passport issue there, there certainly could be you know going through airports uh, all that sort the of irony stuff irony of that up to Scots actually having to do that to us would, I know. Would be, wouldn't be lost as a draw I'd say that the Irish teams are reasonably content the way it's worked out yeah. Ulster will be able to bring more away fans. They're entitled to 25%, which would be about 12,500. They'll take every one of those and try and grab a few more if they can. That would be the easiest sellout for Leinster yep. in a long time. This would be an absolute sellout. So that's a bumper gate for Leinster, a bumper gate for Ulster. Um, bumper <clears throat> gate for Murrayfield. Yep. And if Munster were consigned to an away quarter final, then Murrayfield, where as many as their Red Army want to go, will be able to go is probably the one to pick. I'm not saying Edinburgh are eminently beatable, they're not, but they, they are the most beatable, perhaps, realistically, of the of the, of the four home sides. Because it looks to me like Leinster, Saracens and Racine have been the three heavyweights all along. And you could probably throw Munster in there, and that's the semi-final lineup we all thought we were probably going to get a long time ago, and it could welcome to pass. And it's um, if, if Toulouse beat Racing and Leinster beat Ulster, does it go to Dublin, the semi? If Toulouse beat um, Racing and Leinster beat Ulster, it goes to Dublin. And if in, indeed, if Toulouse were to win, um, Leinster or Ulster would be at home in that semi-final. Whereas in the other half of the draw, Saracens would be at home to Munster if they beat Glasgow, but Munster would be at home to Glasgow if Munster and Glasgow both won. So it looks like it will be Saracens v Munster, mm. Racing v Leinster on form. But mm. we're, we're presuming a fair bit there, I suppose. Something like 75% of quarterfinals are won by the home side, and that's gone up in the current format. Mm. It's gone up to about 83%. So it's, uh, yeah, it's it's a tough thing to do, win away from home in a quarterfinal. Ulster get to have this um, season that's going to, on from just from the outside, from the, uh, before scratching the surface, it's going to look like a really good season now mm. because they get to go to have, they'll give Leinster a game, there's mm. no doubt about it, once yeah. they get there, if they get everything onto the pitch. Leinster could be battered and bruised after the Six Nations. It could be one of those seconds teams that only averages 30 points. And you as you pointed out today, actually, Jerry, the, it's a tighter schedule now. Mm. So it's it's a fortnight after the Six Nations. Yep. It's straight back into it. And, Len, you know, the Leinster team won't play together. Their next time that they, then. The next, the next game, game together will be against Ulster. Ten weeks from now. Yeah. In the meantime, they'll have been bulk suppliers to the Irish efforts in the Six mm. Nations. Bound to ship a few knocks. Will be absolutely battle-weary by the end of it. Um, as much as battle-hardened and it could be that if anybody's got an injury or a knock particularly in World Cup year I doubt they're going to be risked That's what, whereas Ulster are not bulk suppliers to, to the Irish team they'll have one or two or three well they, you know, they'll have a Henderson Stockdale for sure Rory yeah. Best but not to the same extent and they therefore will be playing together in the intervening period a little bit more than as a unit than Leinster would have done that, that, that's a factor Gavin what do you mean there when you say if you scratch the surface is it not fair to say that Ulster have had a terrific season. Would they not look at this as being A or B plus? Yeah, they've been hammered a few times though, you know. Every time they don't put out their best 15 they and they're up against decent opposition, they get sorted out because they don't have an underbelly at the moment. They just don't have a squad, you know. They have to build a squad. It's a whole process. Um, 
they really have to try and they haven't qualified. They're in trouble as far as qualifying from the Pro 14. They have to they have to really get some good results over the next couple of weeks. Um, like they could actually end up getting to a European semi or final and not qualify for Europe. You know, it's it's possible if they ended up getting to, if that happened if they somehow beat Leinster. Mm. Um, then they'd be they would they don't have the strength and depth to go on two <coughs> two levels to the end of the season. So, but Th- I don't that decide but that decides. What you're talking about there, if they qualify for Europe next year and get beaten in a, in a quarterfinal or a semifinal this year, then it's a good season. It's an, ex- it's it's an excellent season. It's an excellent really, season. Really, really and good achievement. They're yeah. fourth at the moment in their conference, but they're they're very close behind Benetton and Edinburgh. So I w- wouldn't be surprised if they still finish second or third and make the playoffs and mm. qualify for Europe. And on top of making their first quarterfinal in five years, nobody would have thought this was doable at the start of the season. Um, Dan McFarland's done a brilliant job. Look at their scrum alone. Like their scrum was rock solid against Leicester. It really struggled in the first meeting against Leicester. So you got Eric O'Sullivan coming through there. Great talent identification by McFarland. Marty Moore with nine or ten games under his belt. It was debut in that first game against Leicester. Henderson's playing as well as ever. Roy Best is... Darts at the line that came under a bit of pressure against Leicester. They were woeful, and truth be told, in the first and half. The week, and the week before yeah, as well. They were woeful, but he's brilliant around the pitch for them. He's still a very inspiring leader. He's definitely going to captain Ireland against England. Mm. Um... They've got a very good team because Code says like a new signing. He's actually touch wood, proving durable this season. You saw the impact John Cooney made when he came on. Um, Billy Burns' kicking game is a revelation. His his short kicking game, his inventive, clever kicking game. You know, the, for the second try, he's really, he's really, he's added something. Will Addison has been an outstanding sign, signing every bit as much as Jordan Mur- Jordy Murphy has been and Marty Moore has been. They've done good business. They've got a good team. They've got a good coach, good coaching ticket. And uh, they've exceeded expectations for sure. John Cooney is pretty important there, isn't he? Yeah, he, he really steadied the ship when he came on on Saturday. Uh, I think he. They, they, I don't think they, they get through it without him coming on. Mm. You know, yeah. And he, what he, the, the world, the roads opened up for him now mm. to be the guy who comes on and has a big say in Ireland matches during the Six Nations because of injuries to all the rest. Next of the one lads. down from Murray. Yeah, he. Yeah, yeah, yeah he's on the bench against yeah, England for yeah. sure. And, and he's got this kicking element to him that means. He could go and cement himself as part of the Ireland setup. He's got a ch- he's got a real opportunity now, and he's he's in the peak of his career. Particularly if they only bring five halfbacks, which Joe t- did last yeah. World Cup. Yeah, because then you've got a guy who can play nine and ten yeah. and goal kick. Yes, yeah, so you'd bring two out halves and you bring him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah he's it's doing. He, he, he's in. He's in a really good position now. Yeah. Jerry, you were at the game of the weekend. Yep. Not many. Not fireworks, shall we say? Munster nine, Exeter seven, but it was just attritional rugby, wasn't it? It throbbed from like an hour before kickoff. Until about an hour after the full time whistle, and it never stopped. They, it those, was those games should always be at five o'clock. Yes, half five on a Saturday yes. in Limerick. It was the eighth <laughs> against English teams, an Anglo-Irish shootout as the mist and the darkness rolls in and the floodlights are everybody, on. Everybody, everybody who's not, into sport in Ireland yeah, should go just, to one of those sometime. Yeah, absolutely, a, la, a last I, I, a, a pool decider at yeah, half five yeah. on a Saturday. I brought my mum, my sis, my kids, everybody. I, all all of them have sampled. You, know, you have to sample this one. It never shortchanges you, you. And it's just there's nowhere you'd rather be yeah. on a Saturday at five yeah. o'clock in the final weekend of the Heineken Cup. Yeah. Anyway. We should um, note that Exeter, though, are like of all the teams that we've just mentioned, these elite European teams, they are one of them. The, and they've just come across Leinster and Munster in the last two seasons. Yeah, and they've caught like their pack. They came across Claremont one year and mm. they came across Toulon another year when Toulon were winning it. Like they've been quite unlucky in their pool draws and they're very, very, very close. Um, I think in the last two seasons, there have been 16 Anglo Irish matches in the Heineken Champions Cup, 14 Irish wins and one draw. And isn't one that, defeat. Isn't that astonishing? Or it might even be actually 18 matches and seven, 16 wins, yeah. one draw, one defeat. Yeah. 
But you look at Exeter Munster, the two games, and you say there's no chasm at all between the Irish and the, and the English because Exeter, along with Saracens, are just a complete cut above the rest in England. Basically, the other 10 teams this season are vying for relegation or, in a way, semi-final playoffs. And they're all in the mix for both. Exeter are um, different Exeter. as well, though, Jerry. They're, they're owned by a trust. They're turning profits. Really well run. They, yeah, everything they do is is aimed towards making them a successful entity across across the board. And Brilliantly coached. Like ten years ago, they were a championship club. They won promotion their first year under Rob Baxter. They've been nine years in the top flight. Champions three seasons ago. And he loves Europe. He loves the whole concept. He loved the day. He loved the experience. He thought, wow, you know, stand up and fight the fields of Athenry, 27,000 people. He just loved it. And he thinks less of this debate about why the English are struggling and, you know, just he can't wait to get back into the competition again mm-hmm. next year. And uh, they're going to crack it. You know, they are going to crack it. They, they just stick with something. They've they just got a very good setup. They've got six international props in their re- rota. They don't overspend, but they spend cleverly. Um, they have a great system of playing. They're not the most beautiful team in the world to watch, but uh, you know when they've got Noel in the mix, Jack Noel in the mix, they've got certainly they're magnificent at retaining possession, which makes Ty Burns' achievement in winning two turnovers against them akin to about ten turnovers <laughs> against anybody else. He was on another level. Wasn't yeah. he? like I, they, I, just, I they commit four and five to the rock, and they just don't yeah. risk. He took some the damage, and he he he's actually kind of an innocuous injury that he seemed to ship, and he looked like a bit of a knee. And just from his expression coming off when he tried to soldier on, I think mm. we I think he. It's great news for Ian Henderson, who's come back out of nowhere again. Yeah. But I, I'd love to ask you, Jerry, where do you think the game was really won? Because Carberry, who we'll get to, didn't have a great nope. game. You didn't. know what I mean? No, he left I think no it was a really educational yes. game. Yeah. But he did the real O'Gara. I've just, I'm, I'm not directly comparing to O'Gara, but O'Gara's had those games over the years where he struggled and struggled and struggled, and then a kick and tee gets handed to him, and he's yep. just like, yes. Yeah. yeah. That's Carberry has turned himself in the last three weeks into this, this guy. Machine. Like 20 from 20. Yeah. Um, th- that kick. It was a really, really difficult kick to win Munster the game. Mm. And, and he nailed uh, The third one. Yeah. The nine, yeah. Three, the nine and he, one. Yeah. And he, and and he, he was straight, <clears throat> straight as a die. Well, yeah, it kind of did yeah. fade with the win a little bit. He judged it very yeah. well. But um, but you're exactly right, Jerry. As soon as, as the penalty was given, he, he looked straight over to Amahani. He said, give it to post. Post. He said, yeah. posts. Post. Yeah. He nodded. So yeah. He took the decision mm. away from Amahani. And Amahani might have just looked at him and just... just Glanced at him and seen any kind of hesitation and gone, okay, let's go to the corner. We'll look at <laughs> Don't worry. Yeah, yeah. You just make sure you kick the conversion. But yeah. he didn't. He wouldn't let him. You have That's to, leadership. You have to say that, you know, they would have got through with a 6 7 defeat as it was. But of course, at 6 7, they were one converted try away from elimination from which, out, yeah. out of the tournament, which yeah. would have been a crushing Disaster. blow for their season. Mm. Um, and so I would say that really what got them there was their defence as much as anything else because frequently Exeter went up the line from that kind of range. You have to say that. They earned themselves this this shot out because you know they went in with that advantage in the, in the table through having been more consistent at pool stages. So Exeter had to win by more than seven. So Exeter took penalties and kicked up the line rather than go for the post because they knew they had to win by more than seven. When it came to the similar range for Munster, they could go for the post three mm-hmm. times and Carby nailed all three and that's what got them over the line. But it was their defence. I know Exeter scored off their first mall, but there again, then after, they never scored again. Well, Billy Holland has to get mentioned here, doesn't he? Why? Straight on. Just oh, the steal. Straight on. Like he, made he made 100 tackles. Yeah. Uh, he, he stole, did he steal two line-outs? So he stole the but key the one. stuff he did, it just doesn't look like the Billy Holland we've been watching no. until the, um, the last two years, definitely. But the stuff he was doing, I was like, God, man, if you were playing like this 10 years ago, you'd have a, bu- you'd have a bundle of caps. The thing was, he came the, the try scoring offload to Keith Earls a week ago in Gloucester. Oh, unbelievable. But unbelievable. Like, the risk of going up, it was, Stan- it was Stander and Lockman who lifted yeah. him. Yeah. The risk Great of lift. going up. And he was, was, he was straight on the pitch. Yes. Yeah. You don't Burn, steal that, Burn you lose the game. Because Burn had gone off and had been, you know, the totem throughout. Yeah. And Billy Holland comes on and goes, right, lads. 
This is what I'm here for. It was the play of the day, really, along with Joey Carberry's match winning penalty. It was the play of the day. Carberry's been very interesting because he's slipped into this role now where, like, he wants to, he sees himself as putting pressure on Johnny Sexton. He did an interview in the New Zealand Herald and he goes, best case scenario would be to overtake him and not wait for him to stop. That's one of my goals at the moment. Uh, He's 23 and your man's 33 and he's talking about Johnny Sexton. He goes, like, long term, I'd love to win the World Cup and be the best player in the world. Come on, Joey. You, you know from him, he's not an arrogant say guy. That to us? Remember when he was asked, in an ideal world, would you like to stay at Leinster? And I think his answer was, in an ideal world, I'd be the best out half in the world and I wouldn't have to move anywhere. Something like that, you know what I mean? I mean, he's quite a he's quite a composed young man. And that actually, that yeah. character came through in his response to the Castro match when he missed three kicks. Yes. And he slightly hurried his kicks that day. Mm. The occasion, whatever it was, slightly got to him. And apparently he came in on the Monday and he, he was as cool as a breeze, took over training, nailed all his kicks in practice. Everybody said, like, this... Hasn't bothered him at He's all. Fine. He's fine. And he comes out in the next four games and nails 20 from 20. And a lot of them have been difficult from the touchline. I've been at all the games. Mm. And it's been an extraordinary run of goal kicking. He didn't leave a huge imprint in the game in terms of his attacking Oh, he game. struggled against struggled their defence. He made mistakes. Their defence was outstanding. Yeah, Both yeah. defences were outstanding. And yet it was the lowest tri- scoring match in the tournament so far. Out of 60 games, the lowest scoring. And their first match was the third lowest scoring that you were at. <laughs> like they're, they're like two bulls, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, but... And it's compelling at absolutely. the same time. You, wouldn't you don't have to have 48 you exactly, you wouldn't take your eye off either no, of those. Just to, just to Carby, the narrative was that Joe met him in a coffee shop, him and his dad, and told him if you want to play for Ireland, you go down there, and that New Sephora had dragged it down there, and then it was like he was forced upon Munster almost. But, and Carberry has turned that around and gone, that's not the narrative. The narrative is I want to be the best out half in the world, and I want to surpass this guy. And Leinster were playing me at fullback. So he's taken control of the narrative himself, which he's taken enormous responsibility on himself and has delivered... <laughs> Week upon week upon week. And we're talking about, oh, we'll see him in the Italy game in the Six Nations. I think we'll see him a lot more in the Mm. Six Nations. He's going to be be finishing off games in the Six Nations, isn't he? Maybe, maybe. I mean, I wouldn't get carried away. Johnny Sexton was World Player of the Year last year. You know, like he's still Ireland's go-to number 10 without a shadow of a doubt. He has to respond now to this. Because Carberry is is saying it. He's on the record going, I want to surpass you. I want to take this jersey. Well, he should be thinking that. Of course he should be. And particularly now that he's playing for Munster. I mean, he's now started 11 games for Munster which is 11 times the amount of games he started for Leinster last season. So he should be feeling better about him. This is a wonderful education for him, experience for him. He's going to go to the World Cup so much better ready, prepared than Ian Madigan was four years ago. Yeah. Hence, David Nusifor and, and Joe Schmidt were right. And it won't become like a mix and match rivalry that the, the, the great mistake of the 2011 World Cup that I think the Ireland coach Declan Kidney made by, oh, Sexton's my at half, Agar's my at half. Wait, Sexton's my head half. No, no, Agar's my head half. And it, it, it just damaged the team. You, that won't happen. Like, it's clear who Sexton is. But if the worst case scenario happens, I think we're in pretty good stead. And we, did, we, weren't, like, we didn't know that a month ago. If we're looking at the same neck of the woods for the Ireland team going forward, Conor Murray on Saturday made a lot of bad decisions. Looked like a guy still kicking off the rust, maybe, of, of the break. And was it strange to see him taking off w- with 15 minutes to it go? Was very, it was very strange. It was quite eye-catching. And you know what? It was the right decision. It mm. was a ballsy decision, but it was the right one. Did he hurt his shoulder, Jerry? Uh, he definitely was feeling his neck early on, which was very worrying. Um, but I watched him closely. You, you got you got a better picture of him on TV than you did on the screen. And he did kind of wink to a teammate who's come by and say, I'm fine. Um, he didn't show any physical signs of pain. Maybe he was really forcing a pass once or twice, but he does that at the style anyway. I thought The one thing I would say is he doesn't seem to be carrying into contact as much as he used to do since he's come back from the injury. Like we fret about him now almost the way we've used to fret about Johnny Sexton because he's so important. Mm. He's the greatest scrum half we've ever had. Yeah. He's the greatest scrum half in the world um, and has been for a few years now. 
So he's vital. You know, Ireland used to be world class at 13 and 5. The emphasis is shift to 9 and 10. And you're probably better off to have a world class 9 and 10 than you are a 5 and 13. The 5 and 13 aren't bad though. James Ryan. I'm thinking about Paul O'Connell. Yeah, of course. Sure, sure, sure. They were world class, yeah, no yeah, doubt. Yeah. Like world class is a term bandied about very mm, easily. Mm. If you're restricted to two or three in each team, which is probably more... You're talking about ad- 9 and 10. You're talking about 9 and 10. <laughs> so we fret about him. We fret about Murray a lot. Understand me, Sony. So important. But just before he was hauled off, Munster got into the extra 22 for about mm. the first time of the match. And twice he went blind, once on himself, and the ball was turned over. And then he went blind straight away from another line at about 35 minutes out to Andrew Conway, who had a wall of about four extra mm. players in front of him. It just seemed like he was forcing it. When it was the first chance of the game for Munster to actually build some pressure, and almost immediately he was replaced by Albie Matheson. Now, the great thing is you've got an all-black scrum half as a backup there, so it's a viable alternative. Albie Matheson has been quite a surprise at Munster. He looked like he was going through the motions of just picking up a check in Toulon, but he looks like he's really bought into the Munster culture. And that's what happens when overseas signings join Irish provinces. You buy in or you're, you're out. Or you're gone, yeah. And so I, it was a slight concern, definitely Conor Murray's performance slight. I haven't seen him play like that in a big game like that. It's just You just expect him to be brilliant all the time. That's why it stands out so yes, much, exactly. I think, isn't it? Yeah. What do you think, Gav, watching him? Yeah, when he went off, I went, well, I didn't understand what they're doing. I was like, okay, he has to be injured because even though he wasn't playing well, I was like, you're never taking him off. And you're right, I haven't been convinced by, by Albie Madison, even though I, I know how quality a player he is. But it, it again, it's one of these things where you go, oh, we're done because we're losing, Con- a Munster team are losing Conor Murray with 15 minutes to go and they figured it out. Like, there is no... There is no worry anymore with mm. these guys. Like we're down to again, Conor Murray is a good thing. He'll he'll get his act together for sure. But now there's a the dynamic now of scrum halves is uh, Conor Murray and John Cooney, and I'm I'm really interested to see how that plays out during mm. the Six Nations. Mm. It's not the end of the world. All right, lads. Well, right. we'll uh, look forward to the next couple of weeks, and we'll be talking to you plenty. Cheers, Cheers lads. I was uh, working stiff on Saturday, Pat. I saw that you yeah. were. Um, you were live blogging. Yeah, this is what I get for, uh, I guess, being in the boss's eye line when he has a bright idea. So uh, on Friday here, he said, what are you doing tomorrow morning? And I went, hmm, Saturday morning. Well, you know, enjoying life, you know, living, not being an Irish Times employee. Sadly, I was mistaken, but not sadly at all, Pat, because I live blogged the last uh, round of the golf from Abu Dhabi, which Shane Larry won. And a roller coaster last round. It oh was. my goodness! Uh, Philip Reed is on the line to talk about it. Uh, Philip, he uh, he fairly made us wait. He certainly did, but uh, it was exciting stuff. I'm, yeah. sh- I'm sure when you started that blog, Maliki, you must be wondering, was this a good idea? Because uh, at that stage, everything had evaporated on him, and he looked as if he was uh, falling down a cliff edge. He did, yeah. He he looked. He really looked like it was because he 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 started the day three shots ahead, um, and by the turn, he was three behind. Uh, now. Stern, he was playing against in the same group as South African Richard Sterney and uh, Sterney played very well on the front nine but Shane just kind of did nothing on the front nine and he just kind of stood so so still that he got bypassed Yeah, when, when you're standing still and uh, Sterney is shooting 31 on the front nine you're, you are effectively going backwards mm. and uh, you know what was so impressive was uh, how he managed to turn things around because, uh, to be honest, uh, I think the old Shane Lowry and the one that we saw at the US Open in 2016 probably would not have had that fight within him. Mm. You know, like we all know how gritty he is. We know how competitive he is. We'd, going back to winning the Irish Open 
Jesus, 10 years ago as yeah. a, an amateur. But, you know, that question mark had to be there because, you know, if you go even back to the PGA last uh, August in Belle Reve, you know, that was an, a remarkable championship. I know a lot of people back in Ireland, I was over there at it, mm. a lot of people struggling to see it because it was on a 11 sport mm. and people were trying to get their heads around how do you watch this. But Shane was actually in the ticket that, uh, in, going into the last round and very much through the last round, only to fade away a little bit towards the end. But, you know, this was a huge, huge win for Shane in terms of where he is and in convincing himself that he has the bottle, the stomach, whatever adjective, whatever you want to call it, you know, he has that ingredient inside him that when the chips are down, when things are going against you, that he has the ability to turn things around and not only turn things around, but to go on and win it. And on the professional tour winning, which is very difficult is what it's all about. Explain actually that, Philip. What, how will this affect the, the coming couple of years even, not to mind just this season? Well, just past the this season is actually massive in terms of what it does for him because he lost his PGA Tour card last year. So he he taken the decision that he was going to focus primarily on the European Tour this year, which is why he was in Abu Dhabi. It's a tournament he hasn't played for the last number of years because he's uh, the last few seasons he's kickstarted his uh, campaigns over on the west coast of the United States. So. Abu Dhabi and Dubai and next week's tournament in Saudi Arabia uh, were added onto a schedule and the primary aim was that he was coming back to his roots in some ways and uh, I, d- I don't think anyone could have envisaged the way that he, he won and I do know some people that had him backed at 90 to 1 which hmm. is a great price but uh, Not this guy what, <laughs> but what, what it does is he's into the two upcoming WGCs which are huge money events there's no cut in Mexico so he's guaranteed more money for the race to Dubai he's also guaranteed more world ranking points he's into the Dell match play which is top 64 available players in the world so he's into that as well he's into the players and more than more than likely he's also into the Masters at Augusta so uh, by being in the top 50 he's now moved up to 41st in the latest world rankings so it's in his own hands He's a comfortable gap between himself and the guy in 50th place and uh, he, he should pretty much stay in the top 50. The way the season is going over the next few weeks, he's a lot of tournaments on his plate, but uh, having to revise the schedule to put Mexico on instead of Malaysia or putting the match play on instead of going to Qatar and places like that is, uh, as he said afterwards, you know, if he was going to change his schedule, it was only going to be for the better. And this is very much for the better. He's back into the elite tournaments. He had a premonition about getting to Augusta, didn't he? He was having dreams about his daughter there. Wasn't, uh, wasn't he telling that to the press afterwards? Yeah, isn't that funny? Because, it, But it also shows how honest Shane is. You know, there's a lot of guys who would be afraid to actually tell you those sort of stories. Mm. But Shane is so honest that, uh, you know, he, he says how he feels. He, he wears his emotions on his sleeve, and you know something like that. He's, he's very much a family man. He's, you know, he's totally enraptured with uh, Iris's daughter. You know, ever since she was born, obviously, as we all are as parents. But you know, it's 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 something that in the background helps because uh, you know it, it's good to have a good family environment. It's it's good to be happy in your own skin. He's got a great team around him. Like Neil Manship was out with him for the last couple of weeks in Dubai and in Abu Dhabi. Neil, as you know, is his coach going back to when uh, 
he, he first broke through as a teenager with the Golfing Union of Ireland and he stuck with Neil all the way through, even though Neil's main job is looking after GUI teams. And uh, I've, I've often found that in the weeks where Neil happens to be around because he has to structure when he's going out on tour with Shane, you know, there are weeks when he's not really needed by the GUI in terms of teams are in action. So, but in the weeks where Neil Manship is out with Shane, Shane is a much more relaxed person. He's more focused on what he's doing because, you know, he trusts implicitly 100% what Neil Manship, the message that he's getting across. And I think that was a big bonus having him out there last week. Philip, it struck me watching it uh, on, on Saturday that um, there's a, there's almost an intangible benefit to the way that he did it. Um, like going behind, having to having to dig it out, having to to basically, he was standing on the on the twelfth tee, four shots behind, um, and the twelfth tee. Uh, for anybody that didn't see it on Saturday, the twelfth tee is a short. It was a par three over water with the pin right at the front of the green. You know, just a few steps on over the water. And nobody was going for the pin. You know, it was it was a windy day. It was a sucker pin. But for him to stand up there and go, uh, right, there's nothing else for it here. I need to... Sterney hit first and hit sort of 30 feet away to the back of the green. And Larry just went for it. And for him to do it that way, Philip, I think between that, his short game, the, the up and down on 17, which was, you know... Shane Larry of old, like like the the Shane Larry we knew coming through that his short game was going to be magical, that sort of stuff. I think that sort of stretch of six holes is going to stick with him long past this week, next week, for for, for the next few months because it was just it was his own game that got him that 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 won it for him. Actually, a very similar thought came to me when he was on that 12th team, Malachy, because uh, as you pointed out, Sterney, he went long, which is where the vast majority of players were going. It was a difficult pin placement. And yet, it was also a shot he had to take on more than anyone because given how well he had played the part trees, which is quite extraordinary all week, uh, I know Paul McGinley at one stage in the commentary said he'd never seen anyone play part trees right through his career. It was, as an, well actual, as Shane did it was an actual week. European tour record. He had 11 yeah. birdies for the week on par threes. Like that has never been done in the European tour before. It was phenomenal, wasn't it? But, you know, it, it was such a smooth swing. And from the moment he struck that shot on the 12th, uh, you know, it, it was only going near the flag and there was no fear in his eyes. It was just one of those pure swings. Mm-hmm. And Shane does have that rhythm, you know, that you look at him and you just say, like, almost it's not taught. It's just so natural. And when he's in that mode, and obviously you'd like to see him in that mode coming down the stretch, it is definitely going to stand to him. I know afterwards, you know, there's a lot made of the up and down in 17, which was fantastic. It meant that he was level playing the 18. And the tree would have shot, um, mm. tree would approach to the 18th. I'm sure it'll be the European Tour shot in a month because, you know, you know 281 yards with a tree would under the cosh mm. to find the green. You know, it's, it, it's remarkable stuff. And, most of us mere mortals, when we have a golf club in our hands, can only dream or hallucinate, as Shane maybe did with his daughter in his dreams the night before about producing anything even like that. But that's exactly what I mean, Philip. Like that—that that when you have to hit the shot and you then hit the shot, like that's 
that gives you that, that that that's worth almost more than winning the tournament. Like that that's that's you then going forward when you're standing over shots like that again, you remember I've I have done this before. I can do this. Yeah, and that that's going to stand to you know whether it's on the 18th in Sawgrass, whether it's going to be at the U.S. Open in. Uh, or it's the PGA in Bethpage, which is obviously in May. You've got the US Open in Pebble Beach. And of course, you've got the Open Championship itself up in Royal Court Rush in July, which is, you know, they're all dates now that he can pretty much put into his calendar. Know he's going to be there and know that he's going to be there, hopefully as a contender, because w- what he did in Abu Dhabi, the manner, not so much the way he started off at the 62, but the way he finished is going to stand to him big time going forward. Uh, that's fantastic, Philip. Listen, thanks very much. We'll talk to you again. Take care. Thanks very much, Maliki. Thanks, Pat. And it's a special Monday morning, Pat, to finish off. We have the first appearance of our GA correspondent of the year. Hello, Sean. How are you? Sean Moran is here. Not quite to talk about the leagues which start uh, next weekend, but something pertaining to them. Um, Central Council on Saturday, Sean, uh, voted through four of the five uh, proposed changes to the football rules. But, of course, all that anybody will really talk about is the fact that they voted down uh, the restriction on the hand pass. Um, talk us through a little bit of what, what happened on the weekend. Yeah, the, probably the four that went through had good reason to be uh, grateful to the, the hand pass experiment <laughs> because it spared them any real scrutiny. Uh, but... The hand pass had been controversial during the pre-season tournaments. You had a chorus of dissent from the managers and what players were asked. I think that the the public mood on it was maybe influenced by the fact that, uh, you know, a, a lot of the, the media and uh, broadcast media, particularly, I suppose, RTE, the, the biggest of the, the broadcasters, uh, tended just to cover what the managerial view of this this was. We didn't get a great deal of counterweight. Uh, or, or more important, well, maybe not more importantly, we didn't, like, the first time that these rules were on television was on Friday night. That's correct, yeah. That was the, the first time. And it was an interesting TG Carr experience. TG covered the Oberon Cup final. The, the, yeah, the Dublin uh, Westmeath match. It was, that was the first time, I would say, the vast, vast majority mm. of people got to see these yeah. in action and got to experience anything to do with them other than hearing managers give out about them. Yeah. So, in other words, the the most critical constituency within the organisation was the one that monopolised the coverage yeah. of it. Uh, and I must say, I thought, you know, looking at the, the matches, that it, it was at times hard, you know, it didn't occur to you that there's actually restrictions in, in progress here. I mean, obviously someone gets whistled up occasionally, although again, like the statistical review showed, you know, that the that in terms of refereeing mistakes, which was another thing that gained a lot of prominence during January, that there were only, I think, 1.6 per match, that the, according mm. to the, the analysis. So, uh, yeah, there was a lot of, I suppose, um, biased uh, coverage of it, which which shaped the public mood to to an extent, and we also had, as I say, a cons- the very important constituency of managers and and and, and players uh, given out endlessly uh, about it. So it was an unpromising, I suppose, environment to to, to go into on on Saturday. Uh, and the the word last week hadn't been great for the prospects. Uh, you kind of felt that referees were 
unhappy with the, the challenges of it, to put it euphemistically. Uh, and so you went into the weekend thinking this is going to be really touch and go, which is how it turned out. You know, like it was it was 25-23 against the experimental hand pass. And interestingly, uh, the question arose at the meeting, should this level of review be applying? Because the, the delegate who had proposed the review back in November said, well, look, we can have a look at all of this in January when we've seen a few of the matches said that he hadn't intended this sort of a review, a kind of a thumbs be, up or thumbs to down. Be exactly, to become a referendum. It was, or, yeah, uh, it was a snag list. It wasn't meant to <laughs> sort of uh, abort the sale, as it were. And uh, But that's that's what happened. And uh, It's interesting, just to go back on something you mentioned there, it's interesting, the, the, the referee thing is interesting here. Because I, I had a sense for most of the way along that, you know, Centre Council are never particularly delighted to be uh, turning back on decisions that they themselves have come up with. Um, and I got the sense that all the caterwauling from managers and players and all that kind of carry on uh, mightn't have been enough here. But the input of referees, if referees are going to Central Council and saying, hmm, this is, this is proving too tricky for us or this is getting us into more trouble than it's worth, that kind of thing, I, I, got, yeah. I would have a sense that that carried... That carry, yeah, that's interesting. Off weight, maybe, you know. Because one delegate actually said, I have taken on board the views of my county team and players who are hostile to this, but I believe yes. the experiment <laughs> should proceed. Um, interestingly, the question of the referees never really came up at the, uh, at the meeting. In other words, it wasn't really a, a major... Mm. Um, it wasn't really a major influence on the debate. Now, whether, whether it was in the out conditioning of, of, of people's attitudes. That's what I'm saying. Uh, yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe not out loud, but yeah. if that was... Well, no, if, undoubtedly. If, that's, if that was what was being mentioned in dispatches... Yeah, yeah I, I, and I felt that was probably... Um, that, that, that was probably predictable, you know, because as, as we've said, like players and managers complain about all rule changes. So, I mean, that's kind of noise that you get accustomed to when you're talking yes. about rule changes. Um, but... On, there was also a debate about whether, as I say, this should have gone ahead, uh, that, that, that they actually should have pulled the plug on it because this review wasn't meant to review the existence uh, of it. But anyway, that's, that's, that's what happened in the end. Uh, it's actually just confirmed the ones that did get through. So what got through was sideline balls must be kicked forward. A black card infraction is, is, is now going to be punishable by 10 minutes in a sin bin. Yeah. The kick-out has to be taken from the 20-metre line and has to travel to the 45-metre line. And the attacking mark has also come in. Actually, Sean, could you explain the attacking mark? Because every time I read the details of it written down, I get slightly confused as to how it works. The, the attacking mark uh, must be kicked by a player uh, either on or outside the 45-metre line into an attacking player. The ball must travel 20 metres, must be cleanly caught without touching the ground in the meantime and then that player has 15 seconds to uh, take a kick if they if they want to so it's a, it's an opportunity to, to for a forward score off a off a high catch or a or a long ball catch and they can kick at the post or they can move forward from there if they want they can yeah well that clears that up but the, of those rules the the one i suspect will cause most issues uh is the one on the sin bin yeah oh, yeah the, the sin bin uh Sinbin is a, is a huge, well, huge, don't overstate it, Matt, but I think it's a terrible retrograde step. Yeah. I'm not in any way surprised 
that the players are all the players and managers. Oh yeah, Sinbin, it's a great idea, great idea. It's, a, it's a, an absolute license for cynicism. It's and and even in in terms of its administration, the. the it's not clear. In, in rugby, it works because rugby stops the clock yes. uh, when the ball is dead. Um, and it just doesn't happen in football. So any injury time um, is incorporated into the, the yellow card period. So it's a, it's a, yes, it's an invitation to malinger uh, for, for, for players um, to run down the clock. And I suspect that. And, it's, and it's no, it's not a, a punishment particularly. In a in a fifteen man fourteen man game, it's not a massive punishment. Um, no, I, I I agree with that. Compared to, compared to having to play, like the the reason a black card works as a deterrent is that a player thinks that's my day finished. Yeah, exactly. If he thinks right, I'll take ten minutes off here and we'll be fine in those yeah. ten minutes. Yeah, it, it's. A, I would very much expect cynical play to go up. I think the 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 the, the black card as originally envisaged was really a question of taking one for the team because you were gone and someone else could uh, take your place. Whereas this is kind of the team taking one for you because <laughs> yeah. you're going to leave them for ten minutes, a man short or whatever portion of that ten minutes will apply. Given Malkit that we've lost the hand pass rule and at a much earlier stage we lost the rule that they were batting around that pertain to shape the idea of keeping mm. players in a, in a half and they were the things that people had an issue with have we completely lost our chance here because now there's a moratorium on rule changes so do we have a broken game that we have completely failed to address the problem oh, no 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 I don't, I don't I don't think that at all and and you know I, I probably think differently about football to you as in I don't particularly believe that it's a broken game anyway uh, and I I actually think that in in the last few years, I think the game has been evolving to being a more expansive game, um, just through through natural evolution, through the simple fact that mass defence teams don't win things, and therefore, you know, it it's its usefulness uh, has is is ebbing as we go along. The only reason mass defence teams don't win things is because Dublin exists. No, that's not true. Well. Tyrone were were the All Ireland finalists last year. Yeah, but they don't particularly play a complete mass defence anymore, Pat. Like they they play a far more expansive game than they did three years ago. They played the, the whole of the, of the All Ireland final last year with three forwards up all at all times. Like the 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 fourteen men behind the ball thing doesn't work anymore. They you know, of course they get plenty behind the ball, but they they played with three forwards in. Dublin's half for the whole of the All Ireland final last year, and four when Colin Kavanagh went to full forward. Like the the game evolves. So anyway, to go back, I I don't believe that the game is completely broken, and these little bits and little tweaks around the edges all work towards, with the exception, I think, of the Sinpin thing, which I think will encourage more cynical play. But that's a, a different different aspect of the game. Um, like these things will work a little bit. They, they, what these rules and even the hand pass rules never addressed, and God knows if there is a way to address it, is the idea of of the blanket defence. Like uh, you know, the the biggest sort of eyesore on the game are these teams that pack everybody behind the ball. But as I say, I kind of think that sort of natural evolution was changing that anyway, and will continue to change it. These will change it a, a, a little bit as well. But I I tend to think that that that's the only way to change. Any game is sort of piece by piece and bit by bit. 
One of the big arguments against the hand pass restriction was that it didn't address the issue of of, of a blanket defence, of, of a mass defence, and that that was the issue rather than the amount of hand passing. And if you look at how Dublin evolved mm. their coping mechanisms with that style of play in the last couple of seasons, it's been very much by uh, by denying the opposition possession. So it's, that yeah, it's been funny. God love them. Uh, every, uh, every piece that I've seen on the rules uh, for the last, whatever, two months or whatever, uh, I would say if if you went through the newspapers to see them illustrated, uh, uh, Kieran Kilkenny has been used as the photograph. Yeah, there's, there's 50, <laughs> the, 60 possessions. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And because that is, you know, the, now, uh, if we are considering that that is the ill that has besetted the game, uh, Kieran Kilkenny uh, keeping possession, then we're we're looking at this the wrong way. Like, the, he is not the problem here and Dublin are not the problem here. Um but uh, the, the, like that—that that has been the thrust of it. Mm-hmm. Whereas the problem, of, of course, is that Dublin need to keep the ball because that's the they, most effective. They, they face way. fifteen men yeah. standing in front of them. But but I think also there's 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 an issue there that the two the, the, the two topics need to be separated yes. because the the you know the the the, the falling ratio or, or the rising ratio of hand pass to kick pass. Uh, considerably predates mass defences. Mm. So, in other words, that's a, it's an evolution away from kicking the ball, which is what the committee wanted to address. Uh, opponents said, "Look, the problem is mass defences, and you're getting an increase in the hand passing ratios because that's a, a coping mechanism with, with, with a mass defence." But I don't think that was. I don't think that's the square root of what's what's happening in, in the drift away from from, from kicking mm. and. Uh, that's, I think, what the, the committee were trying to address. Yeah, it'll be interesting. Like the, the league will be interesting now with the with these four rules. I think you're right, Sean. You know, the 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 other four rules went reasonably without scrutiny because everybody was talking about the hand pass rules. So to watch a league with these rules being played to see how the best players playing in in decent weather on on pitches that aren't sodden. Uh, find their way around these, and how coaches find their way around them. It'll be, it'll be really fascinating to watch. Like it's, it, look, it's a sport that is evolving all the time. And it was one of the big arguments in favour of continuing the trial mm. that you haven't had the top players yeah. trialing it so far. You've had the preseason. You never got a go at the new rules. The Dublin didn't. Like the Dublin first team yeah. didn't. Tipperary right. didn't. didn't. Yeah, they haven't played it at all. Yeah. And uh, so the uh, the opposition, um, like the. The, I suppose the critical mass of the opposition was in Ulster amongst Ulster delegates. Fancy that! So, <laughs> yeah, and that was certainly the uh, uh, the, the loudest protest. Me down with the managers as well. Um, thank you very much, Sean. Thank you for that. Uh, thank you to Jerry and Gav who were in to talk the rugby. Thank you to Philip who was around to talk about the golf. Thank you to you, Pat. Thanks, Mark. Thanks to Jenny behind the desk, and we will see everybody next week. Cheers, folks. <laughs>